Well, welcome back. How many of you stayed home? But we had a few beautiful days. It was nothing to complain about. Well, I'm so glad that you're here. You know, as we're finishing up the book of Numbers, I told you it was exciting, didn't I? It was pretty exciting. But as we're finishing up the book of Numbers, we're finding that not all stories have a storybook ending. And that's kind of like life, too, isn't it? Not all life stories have a storybook ending. And as we're coming to the close of Moses's story, we're finding that he's got two family funerals, he's got um, a personal failure, and he's got a lot of external opposition from the nations surrounding Israel. His assignment from the Lord has been, seems kind of simple, lead my people from Egypt to the promised land. But we know it's been rife with difficulty. It's been one battle after another. And now he's 120 years old as we jump into our lesson this week. But God is with Moses, and God's grace, just as we sang about, God's amazing grace has been sufficient for Moses in this journey from Egypt to the land of Canaan. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, that says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And just think about all the ways in which we see God's grace just in these chapters, these 18 chapters that we studied this week. So by God's grace, we see that God provides water for the Israelites even after Moses lashes out in anger. By God's grace, God prepares Miriam and Aaron to be gathered unto their people, in other words, to die. Um, But they got to live a nice long life. By grace, God speaks a warning to Balaam through the mouth of a donkey. By grace, God actually protects his people Israel from the curses of a pagan seer. By grace, God actually prophesies about the coming Messiah through the blessings, speaking blessings through Balaam, a complete unbeliever, which we'll talk more about. By grace, God punishes his own people when they worship Baal, a pagan demonic god. And by grace, God allows Moses to see the promised land from a distance before he passes away. So much grace in God's interaction with his people. And remember what grace is. Grace is God's love to the utterly undeserving. When we think about divine grace, we're just saying about amazing grace, that grace is, it refers to the undeserved favor of God in providing salvation to people who deserve condemnation. And we've seen that actually roll out so powerfully as we've looked at the Israelites. People whom God is bringing out of bondage, out of sin, out of death, into the land of promise. And all throughout, they have deserved condemnation, and God has bestowed grace upon them. In the same way in our lives, the wages of sin is death. And God extends to us favor and blessing in place of condemnation. It's something we can't earn because if we earn it, then it's not grace. It's undeserved. Reminds me of Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, which says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So today in our lesson, in these many chapters that we looked at this week, we're going to see that God is sovereign and he is gracious towards his people despite internal disobedience and external opposition. We're going to look at this lesson in two parts. We're going to see, first of all, in chapter 20, the first 13 verses, we're going to look at Moses' mistake. And then as we look at chapters 22 through 25, we're going to look at Balaam's message. And throughout this whole journey through these last few chapters and numbers, we're going to see that really it's because of God's grace that he remains sovereign over human history and he extends forgiveness for disobedience and sin through Jesus Christ. God's grace is just stamped all over this lesson. Well, let's jump in. I'm sure you have lots of questions. Um, This lesson was raised probably more questions than it answered, so hopefully I can help you with some of that tonight. But first, we're going to look at uh, chapters, chapter 20, verse 1 through 13. When we, when we look at Numbers 20, and then we compare it to some passages in Deuteronomy, we figure out that, that what's happening now in this chapter is now 40 years the Israelites have been in the desert. 
So we fast forwarded now to the time where they're just about to enter into the promised land. Most of the people now aged 20 and over who rebelled back at Kadesh Barnea, which we studied about last time we were together, they have now died, and Moses is 120 years old, and they're just primed to enter into the promised land. Verse 1 says, And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. I want to pause for a minute and talk about Miriam, because Miriam's death, I would imagine, caused a lot of sadness for Moses. Remember how instrumental Miriam has been in his life. She was his big sister. She was the one who had um, poise under pressure. She was the one who was able to go to the princess when the basket, Moses in the basket, floated down into her bathing location. And she was the one who went to the princess and convinced the princess that her mother could be, not knowing that it was Moses' mother, could be the, the nursemaid for this little baby that the princess had found. I mean, incredible pressure that this little girl was under, and she played this instrumental role in helping Moses find his way into Pharaoh's palace. That was amazing. And then remember that after they crossed the Red Sea, Miriam was the one who led the celebration, the worship, praising God, leading everyone in praise to God for this amazing victory in crossing the Red Sea. She was a prominent leader among the people through all of their wilderness wanderings. And we only know of one stumble recorded in history. And that was when she became envious of Moses' leadership. And remember, a couple weeks ago, we studied this, where God disciplined her. She got leprosy and was cast outside the camp for seven days. And that was a time of, of great sorrow for everyone because of what had happened. But then she was restored and she was brought into fellowship again after suffering the consequence of her sin. Then we don't hear anything more about Miriam until her death is recorded, and it's just recorded in a few verses. So we have to wonder, what happened to Miriam after that incident? Was she restored back into leadership? Did she come back alongside Moses and lead the people alongside him? Or was there still some sense of, of defeat for her? It may be that um, even though it may be that even though she was forgiven for her sin, it could be that her influence and her usefulness for God's work was limited after that time. It's interesting that we don't hear anything more about her after that time. Well, as we go on, we find that the Israelites are, are grumbling again against Moses and Aaron. This is a pattern that's been repeated over and over. And um, they seem to have this condition reflex to complain against Moses and Aaron every time they feel like one of their needs isn't going to be met. And I wonder, in these now 38 years that they've been in the wilderness, has there ever been a time that they didn't have food to eat or water to drink? No, obviously they're still alive. It's been 38 years. So God has always provided for them, and yet they're grumbling again against Moses. And the truth is that, that when we have difficulties, it either brings the best out of us or it brings the worst out of us, right? We know that in our own lives. When the heat is on, when we feel like we don't have something that we really want, it either brings the best out of us or it brings the worst out of us. I think that's why James reminds us that we are to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James, I think, has so much wisdom for us in the New Testament because we learn so much about those who've gone before us in faith in the Old Testament. But remember that the last time that the Israelites were grumbling against Moses because of their thirst, we looked at that a few weeks ago, it was recorded in Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7, and at that time, if you remember, they wanted to stone Moses. Remember how violent they became? They wanted to stone him. They wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted a different leader because they were thirsty. And Moses then cried out to the Lord, and the Lord had told him to take his staff, and he told them to strike a rock, and the water would come out. And Moses did exactly as the Lord commanded. Well, now we see another incidence where there's water coming out of a rock, and some people think, well, was this the same story? Why is this happening twice? But and especially it's confusing because both places are called Meribah, which means quarreling. So in both cases, we have a rock, we have water, we have thirsty people, and we have quarreling. So some people think, well, is not this not just the same incident? But no, it's not. Because it's a different location, it's a different group of people, 
It's a different time. And remember, Moses wrote numbers. And Moses would not have been confused about writing two incidences, writing the same incident twice. So we know that this is another, a second episode of, of this. The first Meribah, I have a map for you, which was recorded in Exodus, is said to be in Rephidim, which is down in the southern tip there. It's where Rephidim is. And the second incident, which we look at in Numbers, is up in Kadesh Barnea, which is up at the top. So two separate incidences where there's thirst and there's angry people. So the people are angry at Moses. They want water. They're grumbling. And Moses and Aaron do what they always do. They fall on their faces before the Lord and they pray. They intercede in prayer for the people. Once again, the people should have been on their faces before the Lord asking the Lord for water. But Aaron and Moses are constantly interceding for them. And so again, they're confessing the sins of the people and they're asking God for forgiveness. And the glory of the Lord appears to Moses and Aaron and God gives them some instructions. He says, first of all, he goes, I want you to take the staff. Now, this is the same staff that when Moses and Aaron went before Pharaoh, he did all of those miracles with this staff. It's the same staff that he raised up high and the Red Sea parted. It's the same staff that now is sitting in the holy place that has budded into Almond Branch. Remember that from last week. It's the same staff. And so God tells him to take the staff and he says, I want you to gather all the people together, the whole assembly. And then he says, I want you to speak to the rock, words to the rock. And the Hebrew word for rock is actually not like a rock. It's like a cliff. The, the idea, think waterfall gushing out of a mountain cliff. That's the kind of rock that this Hebrew word indicates. A waterfall on a high rocky cliff. And so um, he tells them that, and then this water is going to pour out and it's going to feed your animals, give them water. It's going to give all the people water. So Moses takes the staff before the Lord. He gets all the people together, and then he doesn't do exactly what the Lord told him. Instead, he says to the people, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Oh, do you hear what he said? Shall you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Who's we? It's not Moses and Aaron that are bringing water out of the rock. It's God who's bringing water out of the rock. He's giving them the impression that he and Aaron are going to supply this water for them rather than the Lord. Now we can say, well, was Moses angry? Yes, he probably was angry. I mean, this was a huge disappointment for him to see this next generation of Israelites coming along and behaving just like their parents, right? They're grumbling and complaining just like their forefathers did who had to actually die in the wilderness. Moses was ready to enter the promised land 38 years ago, and he's been stuck with this generation, and now they're complaining just like their fathers. I think he's a little annoyed. Was this righteous anger? Yeah, I think it was righteous anger. Was he maybe upset because he was grieving over the death of his sister? Probably. Was he worn out from all this wilderness wandering? I'm sure he was. And he's 120 years old. Anybody else grouchy when your body doesn't feel good? Anybody else find aging delightful? <laughs> I think Moses had a lot of reasons. His bones were probably hurting. His body was tired. He was feeling cranky. But above all of that, he made a decision to lash out in anger. And the truth is that a leader must keep his or her emotions, words, and actions under control. That's just the truth. A leader doesn't have the freedom to be unbridled in thought, word, or deed, even when the situation warrants it, even when it's righteous anger. And so in verse 11, it says, Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. So the fact that Moses hits the rock twice, not just once, but twice, also indicates he's mad and he's frustrated because in the previous incident, hitting the rock once was enough to bring out the water. Now, this is really a surprising demonstration of hostility by one of the meekest men who's ever walked the face of the earth. And amazingly, God was gracious. He still gave the people water, and he gave the livestock water. By God's grace, he doesn't always give us what we deserve, right? 
I mean, Psalm 103.10 says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Because God is compassionate and kind and good, he actually met the needs of his people despite Moses' anger. But at the same time, Moses had to pay the consequence of his sin. God saw his heart. Moses was without excuse. He knew God intimately. As a friend knows a friend, face to face, he'd walked with God. He'd had so much revelation of God. He knew better than to, to become angry and frustrated and to lash out at the people. He was held to a very high account because of all that had been revealed to him. In verse 12, it says, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. This was painful discipline for Moses because Like I said, 38 years he'd been leading the people around in the wilderness because of their sin, not because of his sin. And now on the brink of entry, God tells him he's not going to get to go into the promised land. Now, the reason is clear. It's It's because he said, you didn't trust me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites. I mean, if Moses doesn't honor God as holy, who else is going to honor him as holy? He had the responsibility always, because of his revelation of who God is, his personal knowledge of God, to uphold his holiness. And if he wasn't going to do that, who would? It was so vital. And so when Moses declared that he would bring forth the water for them, and he displayed this beating of the rock, it was a lack of faith. That was a demonstration of a lack of belief on Moses' part. Faith is always the correct response to God's word. Faith isn't just knowing, it's how we respond. We can say, well, I know this, but if I do just the opposite, that's not demonstrating faith. Faith is is manifest in the actions that follow what we say we believe. And so whether it's a promise or an instruction, to obey is a demonstration of faith. And to not obey is to demonstrate rebellion, which is unbelief. Well, God states then that Moses' failure to obey his command is as much a demonstration of unbelief as the spies who gave that bad report after seeing the land of Canaan. And so his punishment would be the same as theirs, would be that they, he also would not get to go into the promised land. And because Aaron had helped in all of this, Aaron wasn't going to go into the promised land either. The truth is, is that God's privileged leaders do not have the privilege to disobey. God's privileged leaders do not have the privilege to disobey. God said, speak, and Moses struck. God requires absolute obedience, especially from his leaders. There's no fudging on obedience, or there's no doing most everything God commands. You know, Moses could say, well, I did most everything you said. I mean, he could say he got the staff, he gathered the people. Was it such a big deal that he gave them a little speech first? Wouldn't God want, wouldn't God want them to know what rebels they're becoming? But yeah, it did matter. Most everything wasn't full obedience. And instead, striking the rock, instead of speaking to it, was disobedience. And he could even say, well, in the end, they all got water. So what does it matter? But it matters. It matters because obedience matters. James 2.10 says, whoever, whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. And Luke 12.48 says, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Moses had an incredible privilege, and it mattered that he obeyed perfectly God's revealed word. Now, you might be thinking, well, I'm not a leader like Moses, and so I don't have to live under that kind of responsibility, right? You might even say, well, I'm not even a leader. That's not me. So maybe I have a little wiggle room to mostly obey or to disobey a little bit. But you know, that isn't true. I think we're all leaders and we're all followers. I think we're all following someone and we're all leading someone. 
Think about leadership. What is leadership? Leadership is just a role of influence. That's what leadership is. Leadership is a role of influence. What is parenting? Parenting is the biggest role of influence you'll ever, you'll ever step into. The whole idea of parenting is that you want your children, you want to influence your children to grow up to be good people of good character who love the Lord and who live their lives according to their, their best gifts and opportunities and you're influencing them their whole lives to become who you hope they become. And if you're, you know, in your home, maybe some of you have have spouses who aren't believers and you're trying to influence them to to get to know the Lord and to have a relationship of faith. Or maybe you're living in communities where you want to to influence others for the gospel. Or you're in workplaces, you know, wherever you are, I imagine that there are people that are looking to you and are being influenced by your life and by your faith and by your testimony and by your character. And I always say that people learn far more about watching you than they do about anything you ever say. Because people are watching each other, trying to discern who are you. And, and if you say you profess faith in Christ, why does that matter? Why should I, be, why should I care? So we have people that we're following, and we have people who are following us. And so it does matter. It does matter. So the other thing that's really important is that, um, well, first of all, will you think just for me for just a minute about your own life? Where else could it be that you can see yourself in a role of influence? Neighborhood might be a place. School, if your kids are in schools, you're rubbing shoulders with other parents. Um, there might be all kinds of ways in which you have an opportunity to influence the people around you. And you see, as a representative of Christ, you actually are a living tabernacle of his Holy Spirit. And so we are held to high account for how we live our lives and how our lives give glory to God. Can you think about even how your emotions govern your behavior? How, how you are sometimes unbridled or too raw in your emotions and how that could affect the people who are watching your life. The truth is that sin actually limits blessing. There, there's forgiveness for sin, yes, and there, but there may not always be full restoration after sin of blessing and usefulness to the Lord. The thing about Miriam's life is that she may have only had limited impact on the Israelites after she sinned. I think that might be why we don't hear anything more about her. I think she was restored back into the community, but I think that her sin limited her usefulness to God in the remaining years of her life. And here Moses also, because of his sin, he lost the blessing of entering into the promised land after all of these years being in the desert with the people. Think about your life. Where, where is God, what is God asking of you? Is he asking you to step, take a step forward into a new place of leadership? influence, responsibility, a new ministry? Is he asking you to give up a bad habit or to grow up in your faith, to really concentrate on, on flourishing in your spiritual life or to exercise control over your emotions or your tongue or to trust in, in his promises? How are you tempted to compromise the obedience to God's word or just say, well, I'm mostly obedient, does it matter that I'm a little bit disobedient? I used to tell my kids to delay is to disobey. <laughs> you can't delay and still obey. If you're delaying a little bit, that's disobedience. It's the same thing with us in our relationship with God. Is there some way in which you are improvising on what God has asked you to do? And I want to challenge you to trust him and to do exactly as he has commanded you because his word to you, his instruction to you is for your very, very best, whatever that might be. Here's the thing about what, what happened. You say, well, why does it really matter? Well, let me tell you why it really matters. Because you never know how far-reaching the impact of your decisions really are. You never know how far-reaching. See, what Moses didn't know was that the rock that he was to speak to was symbolic of Christ. Christ is spoken of in Scripture as the rock. And so it was symbolic. God was setting up a metaphor for us for further generations um, when, when he angrily strikes the rock, Moses tarnished that illustration. See, the first time that he struck the rock, that was symbolic back in Exodus 17 of the persecution and the death that Christ would suffer, the rock would suffer in his earthly life. But out of his persecution and death flows rivers of 
living water would flow from his life for those who believed and received him as Savior. So it's a picture, an illustration that was meant to be significant as future generations looked back and saw the symbolism. The problem is the rock didn't need to be struck twice because Christ didn't have to die twice. So when Moses struck the rock the second time, it diminished the whole illustration. God had told him to just to speak to the rock now and words of and, and living water would come out. And so it, it mattered that Moses didn't do what God told him to do. And this is actually spoken of in 1 Corinthians 10, where we are told how important it is that, that we learn from what happened in the Old Testament. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now listen to this. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. See, they were meant to be examples for us. And so for Moses to disobey God, it hurt that example that was meant to encourage us in our faith. We're privileged to learn from him, but it matters that we uphold God's word and his instructions because people are watching us. And we never know how God is using our obedience to impact the lives of others, even into future generations. Grandchildren, children are looking to us. Well, let's talk now about Balaam's message. Um, in Numbers 22, we find the, the whole company of Israel, they're camped outside the border of Moab, which is right across from the plains of Jericho. Um, do I have a map? Okay, well, there's, there's the map. So here you see there's Moab, and we're going to see the Israelites are camped outside of Moab in the plains of Jericho. We can go back and see verse 20, chapter 22, verse 1. says, Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people because there were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. So here's what happens. All of the Israelites are camped outside of Moab, and the king of Moab becomes terrified that there's so many. Remember, three million people are camped outside his territory. You can understand why that would be scary. And so he decides to go to the Midianites and ask them what they should do. And he then, um, he didn't, what he didn't realize was that God had already prohibited Israel from attacking the Moabites because the Moabites were actually descendants of theirs. Back in Abraham's day, his nephew Lot Moab came from the line of Lot, and so God had specifically already told Israel that they were not to attack the Moabites because they were distant relatives. We see that in Deuteronomy 2, verse 9, where it says, Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given Ar to the people of Lot for a, for a possession. God gave them their own land. They were not to encroach upon the Moabite land. So the king of Moab had no reason to even worry about the Israelites being outside their borders. But they were afraid, and they knew that conventional warfare wasn't going to work because as they watched Israel battling with their neighbors, they were dominating everyone except for the Canaanites who they fought without authorization. So the king of Moab decides that he needs help, and he extends an invitation to a man named Balaam to say, would you pronounce a curse on these Israelites who are camped outside my borders? Now, Balaam is a soothsayer. That's a word we don't use very often. But think a divinator, a seer, a fortune teller. That's the kind of, kind of a dark arts kind of occupation. He was a Gentile prophet, and he lived up north in the area of Syria. He was considered a priest, a divinatory priest, so he was able to use dreams and omens to predict the future. He had a reputation for being really successful, so he obviously had some power to tell the future. He had some revelation of hidden knowledge, but he used it for the occult, and he used it to pronounce blessings or to pronounce cursings on people. 
And he, his services could be purchased for a fee. And he loved money, from what we understand from Scripture. He really liked that he had this gift in the dark arts, and people paid him a lot of money for his, for his skills. And so, in fact, it tells us in 2 Peter 2.15, it says, they, they have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. That was the motivation of his heart. Well, in verse 6, it says, Come now, Balak says to Balaam, Curse this people Israel for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. Now we might think about what happened to diplomatic relations. Why didn't he just go talk to them? They would have found out, oh, hey, we're cousins. Yeah, let's, let's be at peace. Let's not be at war with each other. All of this story could have come to a rapid close. But that's not what happened. And the truth is that sometimes fear can distort rational thinking, can't it? He's afraid. And so he brings Balaam a handsome fee, and he tells him to report back what he's going to do. So Balaam, it says, this is where it gets confusing because Balaam seeks the God of Israel. He seeks Jehovah. Now you think, well, is he a good guy or a bad guy? You don't know. Is, is he, he can talk to God. He knows that Jehovah is the one true God of Israel. But he, he also knew, Balaam knew that each nation had their own God that they worshipped. He knew that Jehovah was the God of Israel. And so he calls out to that God to get wisdom about what he should do. Now, you might ask, does this mean that he's a godly man? Is he a genuine believer in the one true God? Well, it seems that way at first, but we have to take the whole story together as a whole before we understand what his real motives were. At first, he seems to appear in a positive light. Despite being pressured to curse Israel, he seeks permission from Israel's God. But when we put all the passages together, what we find is he actually would have cursed Israel if God had given him permission. But God didn't give him permission, so he couldn't curse Israel. And so at first, what seems to indicate that Balaam's character was sincere, it proves at the end, you'll see, that he's actually quite sinister. And bear in mind, too, that he is a a professionally paid divinatory priest, which is considered an abomination before the Lord. God prohibits it all through Scripture to do anything like this. And so, and also we're going to see very soon that he is actually very blind to spiritual things. He's the seer who couldn't really see, which you'll see shortly. So the second question we ask is, so can, a, can false prophets tell the future? Could he legitimately tell the future? Well, yes, and false prophets do all through Scripture. Caiaphas, for example, prophesied the death of Jesus Christ. And there were also many Jewish exorcists who actually cast demons out of people in Jesus' day by Jesus, the power of Jesus' name. In fact, in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So there is some power to do things in Jesus' name, even if you are not a believer or follower of his. So then in verse 12, God answers Balaam's request. God says to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So now, effectively, Balaam is trapped between the demands of Balak, who says, you must curse my people, and I'm going to pay you a lot of money for it, and the commands of God that he cannot curse them because they are blessed. And so he tells the princes princes of Moab that he cannot go with them, but notice he doesn't tell them why. He just says he can't go. See, if he would have told them, it's impossible for me to curse Israel, then the game would have been over, but he doesn't do that, interestingly. So Balak then sends even more princes with more money and more esteem, and they promise to pay him any fee if he'll curse the people. And so this time, Balaam tells him, then Balaam seeks God, and this time God tells Balaam that he can go. Now, was that confusing to you? Why did he tell him that he couldn't go, and then he tells him that he can go? He says he can go, but he can only do what God tells him to do. 
Did God change his mind? Does God really want him to go and curse Israel? No. But God knows that Balaam wants the money. You see, here we have God. God sees the heart of his people. He saw the heart of Moses. When Moses struck that rock, when Moses said, we, me and my brother here are going to bring you water, he saw the heart of Moses, and Moses needed to be disciplined for that. God sees the heart of Balaam, who wants money, who's greedy, who has a big reputation as being a guy who can see spiritual things. And he's saying, all right, you can go. Think about when your kids come to you and say, please, 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 please. And you say, no, 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 no. And then finally you go, fine. You'll see it's not going to go very well for you. I think that's what we have here. God's saying, you go, but you can only say what I say. And in the process, God is going to take the covers off of Balaam, and we're going to see him for who he is. So it says in verse 22, but God's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. So God is now going to display Balaam's spiritual blindness and powerlessness as the angel of the Lord is going to be standing right in front of him, but he cannot see. Do you understand the irony of this? Here's a guy who can see spiritual things, and the angel of the Lord is standing right in front of him, and the donkey can see it, but he can't see it. He's the seer who cannot see. And yet the donkey sees it and steps aside and actually protects Balaam, so God is actually making a fool out of Balaam. In verse 22, it says, Now he was riding on the donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a sword drawn in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Three times we find that the donkey steps out of the way, trapped by the angel of the Lord and Balaam's beatings. And similarly, three times Balaam is going to be trapped between Balak's demands and the commandments of the Lord. He fails to see the parallels. Verse 28, it says, Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Notice that he, I love this part, it's that he, it's that God just opened the mouth of the donkey. It doesn't say that God put thoughts into the donkey's mind, or told the donkey what to say, he just opened her mouth so she could speak what was already in there. And I just am so convinced that my golden retrievers have all of these same kinds of thoughts, and if their mouths could just open and their tongues could say words, these things would come out. I think that animals have these kinds of thoughts, and they communicate in nonverbal ways, don't they? Um, But I love this. and, And Balaam doesn't seem surprised that the donkey's talking to him. That's interesting. Because Balaam talks right back to her. He says, Because you have made a fool of me, I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. Now the same God who opened the mouth of the donkey then opens the eyes of Balaam to see the angel of the Lord standing with a sword in the middle of the road. And Balaam falls face down before him. And then the angel explains that the donkey that he has been beating actually saved his life. He says, Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. So now, is he a good guy? Because he's like, I've sinned, but is it really sincere repentance? It's not, which we will see as we finish the story. The Lord then allows him to continue on his journey, but he warns him, you must only speak words that I put into your mouth. And then ironically, just as the Lord used the donkey to rebuke Balaam and reveal his spiritual blindness, he's actually going to use Balaam's prophecies to reveal amazing truths about Israel and the coming Messiah. And the truth is that God can use any kind of person to speak for him. Any kind of person. Maybe you feel like you're the least likely person to speak for him, but are you more unlikely than a donkey? You're more likely than a donkey. You have a story to tell. You have things that you're learning about God, things that are coming out of our study that you could share with someone. You have people in your life that you're rubbing shoulders with, you're influencers in some capacity, that you could share a word of encouragement or just, this is what I'm learning about the Lord. Just want you to be encouraged. 
Maybe you've been asked at times to share a public testimony of your story of, your, of faith. I just want to encourage you that if God gives you a story to share or a word for someone, to have courage because you never know how what you might say might really impact someone else's life. If you're just willing, he can use a donkey. He can use you and me. Balaam then goes on to give four profound oracles about Israel. It's amazing what he says. The first oracle, he basically says that Israel is a chosen people. Here's a man who is in it for the money, who likes to curse people, and he's saying Israel is God's chosen people. He was summoned to curse them, but he, all he can see is that they're blessed. And he sees that they are blessed by God. It is impossible to curse them because he knows, going back to the life of Abraham in Genesis 12, which we studied earlier this year, God proclaimed that Israel would be a blessing to the whole world, and those who blessed Israel would be blessed, and those who cursed Israel would be cursed. And he sees that it is impossible to curse these people because they are blessed by God. In fact, in his first oracle, he ends by saying that he wishes he was like Israel. He says, let me die the death of the righteous, and may my end be like theirs. Amazing. And in this, then, of course, that makes Balak really angry, and he takes him to another place, and they do more pagan sacrifices, and he wants to give him a different view, and he says, well, look now. And, and then the second time, he gives him a second blessing. And this time, he confirms that Israel is a conquering people. And he says specifically that, that, that God is not a man. He doesn't change, he doesn't lie or change his mind. So basically he's saying, look, this is God and he's not going to be manipulated by me into, I'm not going to be able to convince God to bless these people. He, Balaam says, you know, I'm powerless to affect Israel's blessings. He sees that the Lord is with them, that he is their king, that he worships, that they worship him. He sees that God is the one who brought them out of Egypt and makes them strong. And he says, no sorcery is going to succeed that against them. He even sees that they're a conquering people and their enemies are going to be annihilated like a lion devours its prey. So again, he's actually laying blessing on top of Israel, though he's meant to curse them. And next, then Balak takes him to another place. And this time he can see the whole of Israel camped in the land. He's able to see all of their tents. And this time he actually decides not to use his sorcery. And the Spirit of God comes upon him for real. And he's able to look over all the tribes of Israel. And he's able to see into their future. And now in this third oracle, he talks about them being a content people. And so in these first two oracles, he was talking about their relationship with God. But now he actually has a vision of them in the promised land, in the land of milk and honey. And he sees all of these blessings. He sees paradise. He sees water flowing freely and gardens and tall cedar trees and flowing rivers. And then he, he affirms the patriarchal promises that God says that he'll bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse Israel. And now Balak is furious. And he tells him, just go home. You're not getting your money. That's it. It's over. But he continues to give a fourth oracle because in the third vision, he's seen even greater things. In the fourth oracle, he actually sees that, um, that God is going to bring a redeemer. He's going to bring a savior through them. He's going to bring the Messiah, a star. It talks about the star. Verse 17, it says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. You got to see in your lessons all of that, all of those verses that connected this idea of a star, a morning star. So it's, it's imagery that from the line of David is going to come a star. David is called the morning star. And so from the lineage of David is going to come this ruler. The scepter out of Israel is an image of a king who's going to conquer his enemies and establish his kingdom. And so this prophecy is pointing to Christ, is pointing to the Messiah through the line of David, who's going to come and judge the nations of the world and establish his kingdom on earth. Amazing. By the grace of God, Balaam prophesies about the Messiah, about Jesus. And then lastly, he makes a few last words about the other nations. He sees the other nations being defeated. The Am 
Amalekites and the Kenites. And the point is that he's saying that all the surrounding nations are going to rise and fall, but Israel's going to be blessed, and from them a future deliverer will come and have final victory. That's amazing that Balaam is able to see the Messiah, the coming Messiah, and the victory of Israel. And the truth is, is that God is sovereign in all his ways, and no one can thwart his purposes. We see that all the way through our study of the Pentateuch. God is sovereign. He has a plan. From Genesis to Revelation, he is unfolding his plan step by step, and no one can thwart his promises and his purposes. Balaam can't do it. Balak can't do it. He is doing exactly what he says. He's being true to bring the Messiah into the world. And we live, isn't it awesome that we live on the other side of the cross? So we're studying this in the Old Testament. We're looking at all of these prophecies of this coming Messiah. But now we're on the other side of the cross. We're going to be celebrating Easter in a few weeks. We're going to be looking back to the cross and seeing God's faithfulness to bring the Messiah through the line of David, to die on a cross for our sins, to provide forgiveness, amazing grace for us. It's so exciting to look at it in its fullness as we study the scripture and see the sovereignty of God. Now, I know sometimes in our own lives, we don't feel always that God is so sovereign, right? We are so close to our circumstances. You know, the blessing of standing back and looking at the ark of scripture is that we can see the sovereignty of God at work. And we can say, yes, that must have been hard in the moment, but God, look what you were doing. You're so faithful. But in our own lives, we're so close that we often can't see the big picture. We don't know what God's doing. And sometimes it feels scary or haphazard or, or frustrating because we don't see the bigger, bigger story. But God has a marvelous plan for each one of us, and he's working to fulfill it in our own individual lives as much as he is in the arc of human history. No one can thwart the purposes of God for your life. And so if you're in a hard place today, I just want you to be encouraged that God is sovereign, and he is full of grace toward you. And he is, is able to reach into the most difficult circumstances in your life and bring goodness and glory out of it. That's what we've been learning about redemption, right? Redemption is just God's ability to reach down, to take the brokenness and the pain, to buy it back for our good and for his glory. Our best response to living in this broken world is to just make choices to obey his word to trust him, to believe, to put into action the things that he reveals to us, not just halfway, but all in, all in, fully, to just follow in his leading and, and do what he says and live according to his grace and his forgiveness and his love. God's grace is sufficient for us. Well, just in case you're still wondering, was Balaam a good guy or a bad guy? I want to just tell you, he was a bad guy. And here's the thing. In Numbers chapter 31, verse 6, we find out that though he couldn't curse Israel because God wouldn't let him curse them, he did advise Balak how Balak could tempt them into sin in such a way that God would rain out judgment on his people. In chapter 25, it opens with this big party that's happening in the land of Moab. So apparently, the king invited Israel to come and have a party in the land of Moab. And when they were there, he, he used all of those seductive Moabite sexy women to tempt the Israelites into sin and into pagan worship and idolatry. And we know that it was on Balaam's advice that this happened because it tells us in verse 16, it says, Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord at, in the incident of Peor, and so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. It's repeated again in Revelation. You looked up that verse in your lesson this week as well, that this is something that Balaam is remembered for, is tempting God's people into sin so that God had to bring a plague of judgment upon them. So what Balaam couldn't do through demonic power, he sought to do through the temptation of the flesh by seducing them into sin and trusting that God would then judge them harshly. It's just amazing that after all of these beautiful prophecies bestowed by God on Israel, we're still reminded that in the face of God's grace, mankind has an incorrigible propensity to sin. We see it over and over and over again. Obedience really matters. 
All of us are prone to sin. We have so much internal drive for sin, not to mention the external forces that come upon our lives. And the beauty is that in Christ, there's forgiveness and there's restoration and there's renewal. But we have a part to play in that. And our part is to choose to be obedient, to be faithful, to believe, to trust, to trust in the sovereignty of God, to, to embrace his grace and his love. Um, but sin is serious business. It destroys relationship and it really does hinder our ability to be influencers for the gospel. But God is sovereign and he's gracious towards his people despite that internal disobedience and those external opposition. So as we close, will you just think about where in your life are you ha- do you have external opposition coming against your faith? Maybe it's criticism or maybe it's too busy or maybe there's just a lot going on. Maybe you've got doubt or maybe you're struggling in some way. What external opposition is coming in against your faith? And what internal disobedience or temptations are you dealing with that are also threatening your, your relationship with the Lord? Um, will you receive God's gracious offer of forgiveness through Christ and ask him to help you live in a relationship of obedience and faith? Will you stand? Let me pray for us as we go out into our groups. Father, we learn so much from Moses' life. He has really been a hero to us as we've been studying this year and um, so looking forward to meeting him one day in your presence. So many things I can't wait to ask him. But I thank you, Lord, for his example. I thank you for his humanity and his struggle. I thank you for your grace toward him. Truly, I think it was better to be with you in heaven than to go into a new land at 120 years old. But Lord, I also want to just ask that you would just continue to work in each of us to help us to remember that it really does matter. It matters that we guard our hearts, that we renew our minds, that we choose to really trust you, to follow you, that we're aware of those that we're influencing, that we know, Lord, that, that though we are recipients of such amazing grace, there's also a call upon our lives to be examples, to be fully formed Christ followers, that we live out the reality of our faith in our everyday lives. People are watching. Lord, help us. Help us to be real in the struggle. Help us to be faithful in the hard places. Help us, Lord, to shine forth the beauty of Christ in and through our lives. Thank you so much for what you're teaching us about yourself You're so worthy of worship, so worthy of honor, glory, majesty. We are learning to see you in a much grander way than we ever would have before studying the Old Testament. We're so thankful for what you're revealing to us. I pray now, Lord, that you would provide great discussion in the groups and help us to really learn from each other. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.